1: It is designed to help you build your own self-improvement programme and is perfect for the ADHD brain.
2: And you can get $50 off the course just by using the code SOBER, S-O-B-E-R. So if you're tired of feeling stuck and don't know where to start, listen to the I Have ADHD podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Drunk dot Mummy, com and made in association with HelloSundayMorning.org. Changing the world's relationship with alcohol one Sunday at a time. Oh, the kettle's boiled. Great, perfect timing. Should we get started then? I'm Victoria Vanstone. I'm Lucy Good. And this is Sober Awkward.
3: Right, Lucy, over to you. Thanks, Vic. So whatever stage you're at on your sober journey, and Vic and I are at completely different stages, you'll know that
2: life without booze can at times feel, what do you reckon? Awkward. Lucy and I invite you to listen to our podcast where we discuss the realities of sobriety. The good, the bad, the ugly and the cringingly embarrassing. Our honest and open chats will help you discover what it really means to be sober. Yes,
3: we're here like a dodgy bottle of port from your nan's drink cabinet to take the edge off sobriety. And together we can learn how to feel the awkward and do it anyway. I can see you and I can hear you. Can you see me and hear me? Uh,
2: I can. I've got the giggle I've got the giggles now because we are like two old grannies trying to get on a Skype call. We
3: started at nine o'clock and it's now 9.53 and we've (laughs) only just managed to get it working. Oh, these COVID times, Lucy, it causes all sorts of problems, doesn't it? Yeah, so this is really different to our usual podcast setup. So apologies to everybody who (laughs) notices all the massive errors we're making here, there and everywhere. But... I um, unfortunately have got COVID, which I caught off of my pesky teenagers who all work in the hospitality industry and we live in a tourist town. So I didn't really stand a hope in hell thinking about it. Um, But what it means is that Vic and I haven't been able to get together for our final podcast of the series, which has been pretty disappointing for us because we like catching up with one another, but it's meant that we've had to really think outside the box, haven't we Vic, to pull this one together?
2: Yeah, we're attempting technology without Alan, which is like <laughs> a bloody nightmare because he's like a genius, isn't he? It's okay. He's like I a robot.
3: He is. He is, and it's fine because I don't mind waiting my entire Friday morning while you and yeah. I connect, disconnect, disappear, start, start to send. Like Victor, she was like, "Ready, go," and I went to
2: introduce the podcast, and she just disappeared. <laughs> <laughs> It's like I've gone down into quicksand and suddenly just (laughs) melted away. (laughs) (laughs) so
3: Vic, do you want to explain what we're doing because we're going we're going around this differently aren't we this time yeah so
2: we're recording this on Squadcast today because lucy's in isolation and i'm away for school holidays so we're just kind of i've got i'm draped in sort of birthday things hanging from the ceilings because it was my son's 10th birthday yesterday so yeah we're doing this in weird circumstances yeah and i'm just happy that i can see lucy and she's looking well how are you feeling lucy yeah I feel fine
3: actually. I tested positive um a week ago now, and um uh, not to go into symptoms or anything, but i've been one of the lucky ones. I did have some coldy symptoms, and a real zap really zapped of energy was my main thing, and I still feel that a bit now, but all up i've been fine, and my teenagers um, have all managed to cope wonderfully and seem to just have a couple of days of symptoms and uh, were back and feeling fine again, so I think we've been really lucky. Um, and in some yeah. respects, I'm quite glad that we've got it out the way. Yeah, but-
2: I mean, it's running rampant here, isn't it, Lucy? I mean, it's uh, just uh, our situation in Australia has gone from us not really feeling any sort of COVID nearby to us feeling like it's kind of sitting on our doorstep. So it does cause a little bit of anxiety because we haven't really experienced that over here. There is some sort of thing called COVID anxiety. I keep seeing people, I was laughing today, Lucy, because I went to the supermarket and I see people with their masks just below their nose like sitting below their nose i think, oh what's the point in that it's like putting a condom on your bollocks isn't it
3: well it is oh god i've seen that is so funny and i my daughter was doing that the other day and i just went up to her and grabbed her mask and put it over her nose i said if nothing else it makes you look so stupid if you don't wear it over <laughs> <Yeah>. your nose <laughs> more like, than you've anything you've got it all wrong <laughs> yeah <laughs> You may as well wear it over your ass. Yeah, that's right. Of course, that might be quite handy for me with the, my, my mild yeah. incontinence of the latter years of motherhood.
2: Oh, God. Too much information. Sorry, Sorry about but I, that. But I totally understand.
3: <laughs> the, a mask on your ass. Now, there's a the thing. <laughs> <laughs> Might invent those, yeah. Oh, mask um, <laughs> mask. Yeah, great new business idea there, Vic, for us. <laughs> um, oh, and, uh, but we've actually got a, a guest on, which has been made it even more slightly challenging. This is one of our podcasts where we wanted a guest on today. So just so that our listeners know, but what's going to happen? We're just going to have a bit of a, um, a chat about our topic, and then um, what was meant to happen was we, Vic and I were meant to be talking to our wonderful guests this. week. Week, but um, I couldn't. So Vic actually did that um, on her own. So this podcast is going to run with us having a bit of a chat about the topic. And um, then I'm actually taking a step back because it's Vic and our guest talking together afterwards um so you've been really good Vic rushing around and doing all of that so thank you for taking the load off me while I've been lying in front of Netflix getting over Covid and you've also had your son's birthday as well up there so how did that go?
2: Yeah it was good I was gonna I was gonna put you um your your little Covid bout to shame by complaining about how the fact I've been out for poached eggs on toast twice this week and the bread's been soggy
3: oh well that's you see covid's got nothing on that i can imagine how inconvenient that was for you it was extremely inconvenient lucy i i I just cannot
2: why have a cafe and and here we go here we go (laughs) for fuck's sake why have a fucking cafe and serve (laughs) soggy bread with poached eggs that taste of vinegar
3: they didn't drain the eggs (laughs) they didn't drain the eggs did they
2: Twice, two days in a row, I was crying on my pillow at night. So, yeah, your COVID is nothing in comparison to that. I
3: agree. I agree. (laughs) Nothing worse than a soggy bit of toast, Uh, especially when you paid for it.
2: I know. Anyway, we have been out for some nice breakfast because it's my son George's 10th birthday and we went blueberry picking and we had a lovely time Um, and it reminded me actually that it's 10 years since I really started questioning my drinking it was after his birth when I was trying to combine motherhood and booze which was where my worlds collided a little bit and having that baby was you know, really where my shame started. Before, I didn't need to feel any shame because I could just, you know, run away to another town or drink it away or, <laughs> or do whatever I needed to do. But once the baby was born, of course, I had a consequence to shame. And George really represents that to me. It was a beautiful birthday, but there was part of me inside that was able to sort of reminisce about that shame. And, and that's what we're talking about today.
3: Yeah, we are. We're talking about shame. It's actually brought something to mind, Vic, that I hadn't thought of before when we were preparing the podcast. But um, my daughter went out for a drink with her dad uh, last week and he proceeded to tell her that on her fourth birthday, her dad and I and a couple of other people got absolutely off our rockers. And um, she came back and said to me, oh, dad told me that on my fourth birthday, you and dad did this, that and the other. And I thought, oh... That's shameful um, and I thought oh we do we did we probably did get off of our heads but it would have been after she went to bed um, that we mm. did that still not good um, but I actually went to the point of bringing up the pictures of her fourth birthday party where we actually hired oh, out wow. um, some activity a clown I think with a friend of hers they had a joint party at a local hall so I' showed you didn't her the- sleep you didn't sleep with the clown did you uh, well, I don't know I don't remember <laughs> um uh, but uh yeah so I showed her all the pictures of her having a wonderful time and me and her dad in the pictures and looking completely sober and I said look this was your fourth birthday um and I said your dad has probably got a point we probably did get off our heads but it was after we'd done your birthday party and um, I, and it was interesting because i actually felt this need to it took me ages to find the bloody online photos you know how hard it is to find photos online going back mm. um sort of 16 well, sorry 14 years um but i really felt shame when she said that you know and he was yeah. telling her because he, he was telling her and her boyfriend because he still found it funny and in fact it upset her, so I went to a lot of effort to show her that, you know, we, we she did have an amazing fourth birthday party and she had all the things a four year old should have at their birthday party. Um, but I was also honest and said yes Probably later on in the evenings, in the evening, me and your dad did kind of get off of our heads. A bit like the Christmas thing. You spend so long organising it that you feel you deserve to get absolutely caned afterwards. But yes, I was so ashamed. I felt so ashamed of what he'd said to her that I needed to prove
2: that that wasn't necessarily the case. Um, And part of this podcast is about that today. Like it's about accepting that shame and saying, yeah, I did do that. That was my past life. But hey, look at me now. Yes. and and and, we, and that's why we can talk about shame and that's why we want to is because you know once you let it go and talk about it you are capable of moving on from it i think yeah um actually this is the last episode of series 2 and we wanted to end the series with not not so many laughs there'll be a few don't you worry but we don't want to have a lot of piss taking but i'm i'm not sure i can hold back too much lucy um <laughs> Yeah, but we want to talk about a topic that highlights problem drinking and a guest we wanted to have on that has experienced firsthand the, the actual damage that alcohol does. Later on in the show, as Lucy said, we're going to have a heart-wrenching chat with Sarah Drage. Sarah lost her dad to alcohol abuse disorder and her story represents that of many. I mean, those statistics that me and Lucy so often talk about, we say, you know, they're numbers, but actually they're people, Sarah's dad and many others like him have sadly passed away because of the shame attached to their mental health and to addiction. So today you're going to get insight from someone that's been there, a look into what can happen if your drinking habit goes unchecked and spirals out of control. So yeah, that, that shame really ate me up, Lucy, in those Sunday mornings. It sunk into every pore in my body. Um it was shame that kept me drinking and the stigma attached to the world alcoholic that stopped me getting the help of well and truly deserved. I think when I think about it now, Lucy, I think, well, many people think of alcoholism. They usually jump straight to the more extreme cases of the disorder, like homeless people, people hooked up to machines in hospital, people getting you know, getting the sack or losing their job or not being able to take care of their children like you're talking about at that party. Mm. People that black out a lot and get the shakes if they stop. I think we tick a few of those boxes, actually. Like when I mean, we're talking about extreme, but I, I've fitted into the extreme on some occasions.
3: Yeah, yeah, you're you're sort of saying those things, and I'm thinking. That's me. That's me. So yeah, yeah, Yeah. we certainly do tick some of those boxes. And that's quite a frightening thing. But I guess what we forget is that some people are suffering behind closed doors. um, And they're the ones like me and who couldn't face the world and couldn't admit to having a problem because of the stigma attached. I mean, I was a single mum of two kids. So how on earth was I supposed to admit um, to it and not feel all of this shame?
2: Yeah, not feel judged. I mean, I know we all judge people that admit to having an alcohol problem, but we're judging as we're ordering, you know, another pint at the bar. It's really sort of hypocritical almost, isn't it?
3: Yeah, it is. We we drench ourselves until we're drowning in the stuff, yet we don't feel worthy of help because we don't want to be judged. Um, it's like a never-ending circle. Um, it's really awful. So instead of fessing up to the issue, drinkers have, I guess, no choice but to carry on, which yeah. means millions of people all over the world suffer in silence and keep on drinking until they end up in the direst circumstances imaginable.
2: Yeah, the reason why Lucy and I are keen to have Sarah on is not only because we think she's an utter inspiration for talking about this and we feel her story could have been the story of our own children. Personally, I kept drinking because of the shame and stigma surrounding my habit. It was just too awful to bear, so I carried on. And I know Lucy feels the same. We could have ended up drinking our lives away and missing out on our kids growing up. That is the reality of alcohol.
3: Well, I kind of did miss out on part of my kids growing up through drinking, but I saved it at the last hurdle.
2: You are are much naughtier than me.
3: (laughs) I'm way naughtier, aren't I? I don't (laughs) mind being naughtier. I just don't want to be more of an alky than you. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, fair enough. (laughs) Um, Look, we both believe that if we had not reached out and sought help in some way, our own children... Might have had to go through just what sarah has been through and that is the pain of losing someone they love to alcohol so why do shame and alcohol seem to stick together i guess it can depend on so many factors Um, there's past trauma that can trigger shame there's mental health issues generational addiction issues low self-worth you can feel shame about practically anything Scientifically, we feel shame after alcohol because alcohol is a depressant and it affects the brain's level of happiness.
2: Yeah, for example, a night out you went drinking, you feel an increased sense of happiness when you're out. However, the next day you'll be deficient in these same chemicals and this can lead to you feeling down or depressed. Thus, the vicious cycle of drinking begins. The drinking creates the shame and then you drink to drown out the shame. It's hard to get off that train once it's out of the station. Before we chat to Sarah, let's tell the listeners about our history of shame, Lucy. What does what does shame mean to you? Oh, talking about shame, Vic. How long have you got?
4: <laughs> yeah, I know. I'm grooming
3: with it brimming with yeah. shame, uh, having been sober for a year and three months, I um, sh- shame does still hit me like someone punching me in the stomach when I think of some of the things that I did. Um, it is just such a powerful emotion, um, yeah. shame is. And um, I, it's <clears throat> horrible. I think we avoid shame in, in every area of our lives that we possibly can certainly as we grow older and learn how to do that but the fact that you can have a few drinks and then go off and do something completely out of character which is so desperately shameful is such a scary thing that we ever put ourselves in that position um so the shame that i felt as a drinker i think will stay with me forever i don't mind that so much because it's one of those things that will make me never ever take a drink again because the shame of the way that i behaved with it um I guess really through my drinking days and certainly my latter ones, it was a shame that made me drink more. Um, because I was just so desperately embarrassed about that person that I was and the things that I did. And the only way to get rid of that feeling was to drink and to numb it. Um, some of the things I did were quite horrific, quite embarrassing. And, um, I just, I just, you know, I'm just horrified by it even to this day.
2: Um, I guess and that kind of causes trauma, which again causes shame. It's like this, it's such this vicious circle, isn't it? You just even describing it there. It's like, it's never ending because if you drink, there's no doubt that you're going to cause shame. And also it's a good point there. Like we drank so much that we went into into a blackout. So we don't even know really if the shame existed because we don't know what we've done. So therefore we feel shame over the things that are forgotten. It's like an unknown shame because I used to wake up and think, God, where have I been? Who have I been with? Have no no recollection of five hours of the night. And that brought on massive amount of shame, which is really strange because I might have acted, well, very unlikely. Very unlikely, Vic. well, yeah,
3: that's it. Don't... That's it, isn't it? We're so we we were so used to to, to performing shameful activities and be- behaving in a shameful way that if we had a blackout, which you and I were both having a lot by the end of our drinking days, we just assume that we've done something shameful in that time. So it doesn't really matter if you have or you haven't. You're just so full of it. You're drenched in shame, and it's it's just horrible. Another reason that I felt shame, Vic, was that feeling that well alcohol is so readily available there are so many people out there who seem to be able to drink it in moderation why haven't i been able to do that um, i felt weak in the face yes. of alcohol because i had this problem and other people didn't and i felt shame in that um i felt shame that i wasn't able to handle something that was so readily accepted into our society um and That shame grew and grew, (laughs) certainly as I drank more and my blackouts became longer and my behaviour got worse, but it certainly grew as I aged. Um, I, I think I've mentioned before on the podcast, you know, being a middle aged woman drinking, it's just not cool. You can get away with it in your 20s. I'm not saying you should drink a great deal in your 20s, but you can get away with being crazy drunk on a night out. But in your 40s, it just doesn't look good. It's a shameful look, it's a shameful yeah. memory in the morning and even more so as a mum, being a drunk yeah. mum is a is a terrible way to be. And it was that shame and that horror of where I'd got to that kept me drinking. And ultimately it was the shame at who I'd become because drinking is who I was. Um, that made me get worse and made me turn into a behind-closed-door drinker because I was too afraid to admit to anybody that I'd got to this state where I was bringing up two girls and I couldn't stop drinking. I couldn't do it without drinking. So, yeah, I mean, that, that shame just ran through all of my drinking years. It was a big, big part of me continuing to drink, being unable to reach out for help with drink. And it stays with me now. And I can feel even talking about it now, that feeling in my stomach, that pit of anxiety building up Mm. as I think of shame. So I'm going to use that now, though, to to stop me, to, to make sure I never go back to drinking.
2: I think those reminders, I know you always say if you see someone hungover, it makes you sort of feel sick. And that for me, if I see someone that's drinking or hungover all I remember is the shame. I think, oh, I just never want to feel like that. It was so overwhelming lying in bed on a Sunday morning with that, you know, waves of shame crashing over my soul each day. It was terrible. And that's what drinking reminds me of. It reminds me of shame. It takes me straight back there. I mean, I felt shame after every single drinking session, especially if I'd done something really weird. I mean, I remember after my hen night, which you know, I got stuck wedged down the side of a sofa and had to call out for someone to come and help me. And I remember waking up the next <laughs> day. My mate was like, are you all right? I was like, I'm wedged, I'm wedged. Well, you and literally kind of... couldn't get out? No, I was like a, like a fish <clears throat> flapping around between the cupboard and the, and the floor. <laughs> oh, no. And I was really hungover and I was just lying there feeling oh. shame, not being able to move, but knew I had to call out for help because I couldn't get myself oh, out. Oh, gosh. I mean, that... I know. And um, just so many things. I woke up once wearing a tiny bow tie, like an evil ventriloquist dummy, and it was really tight around my neck. But I had no idea where I'd got it from. Oh. <laughs> I looked like a hot, I looked in the mirror and I had this tiny little bow tie really tightly <laughs> around my neck. It was really mm-hmm. weird. I mean, I've woken up in a pile of vomit wearing a sombrero. I've done all of this crazy shit. But it seems funny now. And I know, Lucy, we turn our stories into, you know, like a lot of our shame stories like i make what makes this podcast sort of amusing um but after those events I always felt a terrible terrible amount of shame and that was what turned into anxiety especially the birth after the birth of my first child 10 years ago um but what I must say here Lucy is it was shame that led me to seek help so that's really important that we talk about it and say how we're feeling about our shame and and I had to walk out into the lounge that day when I, my anxiety had got so bad that I felt like I was going to die or going to go mental or be knocking on the door of an asylum to take me, take me in. Um, It was shame that pushed me there and to walk into my husband and say, I need help. Um, So that's the interesting part. We can face shame and we can turn it around. And if you face the shame, perhaps that is the beginning of the path to sobriety. Um, And also after I had therapy, I had to understand that there was no point in me feeling shame anymore because that behavior that I was undertaking when I was under the influence wasn't me. It was a person who had taken a drug and was, you know, had alcohol pumping around my veins, which made me do crazy stuff. It doesn't represent me as a human now. I am not that person sober. So I don't feel shame now about those things. I'm happy to tell my stories and happy to tell people what it was like, which is why we started this podcast in the first place. I had to let that shit go. I do get the occasional reminder, which reminds me of drinking can cause a craving, but it's very, very futile. Like those moments are very, very short-lived and I don't really go into them mentally. So I think shame can lead you to getting help. Yeah. Oh, I think it
3: can. It's interesting what we've both said there, Vic, which is that I hold on sometimes to my shame. And because I, I'm a year and three months sober, which might sound like a really long time to some, but it's still not all that long to me, considering I drank for 25 years. But, you know, so I like to hold on to that shame as a weapon to, to, to protect me from drinking again. And you're saying that your shame, you turned it around and you used it as your tool to get support. And it's interesting how we've both changed changed what shame is and I guess we relabeled it in this yeah. podcast the way that we talk about it and we laugh about it. And I think that was one of the things that really helped me to give up drinking when I first met Vic was it was just sitting and laughing at the ridiculous things we'd done when we were drunk. I mean we can't we can't stop them having happened. They did happen. So what are we going to do? Are we just going to sort of block them off from our lives? Um, that That is not mentally healthy. You know, the things that happened in our life happened. So let's just have a laugh at those crazy things that we did, which were so are so desperately shameful. And we will admit that they are shameful. However, we are not going to be doing that. Like, like Vic said, we're different people now. We're not going to be doing those things anymore. We're, we're a safe distance from them, aren't we? Yeah. We're far enough yeah. away from them to, to sort of... Re- re- go over them, have a laugh about them and say, God, glad I'm not that person anymore.
2: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Um, it was interesting this week. I didn't mean to do a post for this podcast, but I did a post on my group and said like, Come on, ladies, it's ready to let that shit go and let's talk about our shame stories. And I thought it would just be a couple of people going, yeah, I did this, I did that, I feel shame. But it was actually this massive post of 50 mm. comments with everybody telling all of their shame stories. So a big shout out to all those women that, that shared their shame stories. And the post ended up being... So liberating because we all managed to get these stories off our chest with no judgment because we're all the same. We've all done this stuff. (coughs) You know, we're not hiding the fact that we've all done crazy stuff and, you know, weeing in spots and doing, you know, crazy, all this crazy stuff. Um, So I just wanted to add a little bit to this podcast this morning called The Shame Shed. Two of the ladies I emailed directly and said, look, your story – really made me cry with laughter. Um, can I share it? So the shame shed entrance are, today are two <laughs> ladies from the Facebook group who have agreed to share their stories. The first one, um, one of them shared a, 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 a quote from Jay-Z that said, uh, you can't heal if you don't reveal, which I thought was just perfect for this podcast. Like you can't get over shame unless you talk about it. So um. one of the ladies on the group, she got a tattoo after a day of bottomless champagne, she says in exclamation marks in what's those not exclamation marks uh, speech uh, those marks. other ones speech marks, yes I mean bottomless, bottomless champagne day that's that's a oh, recipe for dang, disaster dangerous, right there, isn't
3: dangerous it? red flags are
2: flying <laughs> yes she got the coordinates of three places she loves most in the world on her ass as she googled the coordinates, they seemed very, very long, so she rounded them up. Now she has something like Gatwick Airport, Parramatta and the middle of her of the ocean on her bum forever. <laughs> <laughs> There's your memory right there. There's your shameful memory. Oh, there were so many. It's worth a read. Um, and another lady, this was my favourite, one Halloween she was blacked out and dressed as a Christmas elf and she couldn't stand up. She refused to let people help her and would hit anyone who tried to with a giant yard candy cane. (laughs) So she she was like passed out, half passed out in like a bush and anyone that came to try and help her, she was attacking them. This elf was attacking them from there. She said she felt definitely, she said it's not one of my proudest moments, but you know, you've got to get these things off your chest. We've all been there, it's fine. There was another woman that got banned from a a theme park for a year. Did Did she say why? Yeah, she'd got thrown out by the bouncers from one part of it already for being drunk, and then she got thrown out by some other bouncers, and they just ended up banning her and throwing her out. Oh there were so God. many stories on there. But actually, everybody was so supportive of them. Like, some of them were funny, some of them were sad, some of them were real shame stories that they felt really humiliated by. But as JC said, Jay-Z says, if you can't heal, you can't heal if you don't reveal, which I think is a brilliant, a brilliant saying.
3: Yeah, it really is, and I've for me, I think you know, I always talk Vic, about how meeting you really changed changed me in terms of my drinking habits, and in fact, got me sober. And it was having somebody to share those crazy stories with, um, and we're not sort of making light of them. I mean, they're not really; they are funny, but they're not funny. Um, but being able to talk to somebody about them and to let them out, and to just share. Rather than bottle them all up inside you and letting that shame grow and grow and grow and get in the way of your healthy path to sobriety, get them out, talk to other people, know that you're not alone. Sometimes just knowing that other people have got these horrendously shameful stories as well. And just always remembering that, that that is not who you are anymore It is something that you did though. And you can't cut off part of what you did. You've got to own
2: it. Um, so, and my crazy stories are part of me. You know, that is my my life prior to this. I've done drinking. I've done the crazy stories. You know, I couldn't say I hadn't lived. I have lived my life to the max and it's been ups and downs and risky in places. But I have lived and it was chaotic. But now I want some peace. And that's what sobriety brings is yes.
3: peace. Yeah, it does. It does. And owning everything. You have to own it all warts and all many many warts on our journey
2: but uh, (laughs) but look
3: it's true Vic and we do laugh on these podcasts um, and it's our way really of getting a serious message out to the world Um, we hope that our openness and our humor educates others around the dangers of alcohol really don't we
2: Yeah. And as we say at the end of some of our podcasts, we never want to make light of the issue. And we take the misuse of the misuse and the normalization of alcohol in society really seriously, Lucy and I, you know, we're just getting a message across in another way so that we can help people change their attitudes and make seeking help for any form of overdrinking more accessible. And, And that's why we're
3: ending this series with Vic's chat with Sarah, which is brilliant by the way, I've already heard it. And, uh, have the tissues ready, listeners. Um, <clears throat> we want you to be able to hear that, you know, how how this can end if your drinking carries on. And that's what Sarah's story is. So pause this now, take a breath, make a cup of tea, grab the tissues if you're feeling a little bit emotional, and listen, as Sarah tells us all about her dad.
2: Yeah, thanks, Lucy. And I hope you feel better We'll we'll hand this over to, to me and Sarah now. Yeah, thank you, Vic. I'm lucky enough to have Sarah Drage with me, zooming in all the way from England onto the Sober Awkward podcast today. Unfortunately, as we know, Lucy has COVID, so I'm all alone in the booth. Um, unfortunately, Sarah's had to meet Alan, which probably was a bit traumatic for her. But she can confirm, I think, Sarah, can't you, that Alan is real and he does exist. He
4: is. Yeah, I can
2: see him. He's real. I can hear him. (laughs) Yeah, I think all of our listeners would probably be a bit jealous that you got to see Alan because he's a bit of a bit of an enigma, that guy. Anyway, I'm just going to tell our listeners a little bit about you, Sarah. So just bear with me one sec. Sarah is a TEDx speaker and founder of the charitable organisation Warrior Kind based in Kent in England. She is a devoted daughter on a mission to quash the stigmas attached to mental illness and alcohol addiction. After losing her dad in 2017 to alcohol use disorder, Sarah leveraged her own lived experiences of bereavement, anxiety, OCD and PTSD and channeled her trauma into founding the mental health support organisation Warrior Kind, where encouraging healthy conversations around mental well-being is core to their mission in breaking down stigmas and supporting her community. Sarah has found the strength, resilience and passion within to triumph over adversity and raise awareness around the dangers of societal stigmas attached to mental illness and addictions, ensuring that her beloved dad is not just another statistic and that his death can become a catalyst for positive change. Sarah's story resonates so much with Lucy and I. We feel that if our drinking had carried on, our children might have to go through exactly what Sarah has if we hadn't reached out for the support of others we feel that our drinking habits would have gone unchecked and spiraled out of control behind closed doors I first heard Sarah on the Sober Dave podcast and I remember having to pull over the car and grab a tissue her story highlights the danger of alcohol and how as a society we need to look at how we normalize drinking culture and the damage it does to not only individuals but also communities. I am so lucky to have this brave and inspiring lady with me today on the Sober Awkward podcast. Welcome, Sarah. How are you? Hi, I'm really good. Thank you. How are you? Yeah, I'm great. Thanks. We were just before we started recording, we were just comparing the weather, which obviously in Australia and England is the done thing, isn't it? I'm boiling, I'm (laughs) boiling hot and you're freezing cold. Is that about right? It really is. It's really cold here. Yeah, well, thank you for joining us so much. And as I said before, Lucy and I feel like your story is so, uh, so important, because we feel like if our drinking had continued, if we hadn't put aside the shame and stigma that surrounded our drinking habits, that we would be in the same situation as your poor dad got into. So tell me about life growing up with your dad, Sarah, what was it like? Oh,
4: do you know what? Our childhood with my dad was amazing. I I was his eldest daughter out of three girls and I was pretty much glued to my dad's hip. So he'd take me everywhere with him. He was a builder by trade. He used to renovate a lot of property and I can remember him taking me to the building merchants and sitting me on tops of bags of cement and pushing me around, um, just pushing me on a big trolley and holding my hand and taking me to business meetings, wherever he was going, I was with him. Um, I think he was a very, he was a very devoted dad, a very um, he doted on his children, absolutely loved us, adored us, told us every day. So he was very, very sensitive, very in touch with his feelings that way. Um, and he, he was my hero. I, I really looked mm. up to him and I noticed a significant change when I became a teenager. So it was probably between the ages of 12 and 13, I noticed my dad had become a lot more withdrawn, a lot more... Um, he was snappier and um, he didn't really want to get involved that whole relationship of father and daughter kind of was becoming a little bit more distance.
2: Distanced. Had something happened in particular there Sarah to make him change?
4: Yes he'd so he'd gone through something in, incredibly traumatic which I uh, that's a story for another day um, yes. but it, it was a matter of life and death for him and right It really, I mean, looking back, he definitely had some kind of PTSD, anxiety, depression, um, but it went undiagnosed. It it was so obvious. Now now I look back on it, it was so obvious what he was going through and he was using alcohol to mask that. So um, he got sucked into one stigma of men shouldn't discuss their mental health. And my dad was a, a Yorkshire man, so he was very, very proud. So talking about his mental health, or anxiety or depression was just it was just unheard of he just wouldn't have he wouldn't have done it um so yeah there was he was definitely drinking to mask that and to be honest he said that he said to me I drink to forget if that wasn't an indication and I don't know what was so yeah he was he was drinking to forget as he said so when I became a teenager we I I definitely noticed there was a change. There was a difference in him. Um, And that was when our relationship, I wouldn't say so much fractured, but I I definitely began to resent him. So his behavior would consist of different moods. We'd never knew, we never knew what to expect. And I always Mm. remember saying to him, whenever we'd go anywhere, don't embarrass me today, dad, just act normal. I mean, whatever normal is, but, it was things like his tone of voice would change or he might become, he might've become aggressive in his tone. So he'd reminisce and become bitter over his past and he'd start talking about it Um, or he would completely withdraw himself. So sometimes he'd go and sit in the car at an event and just be really unsociable. And I never knew what that meant. I never piece two and two together or realised that it was a drink problem. I knew my dad was behaving differently and we all knew yep. he was behaving differently. Um, the atmosphere, the laying on the sofa with his eyes closed in a dark room, all of that, laying reclining the seat in the car and just laying, it, it was just little things like that that was just unnormal behaviour. Um, and I always used to say, I just wish you could be a normal dad, even down yeah. to... My mum was always the one driving and I never used to understand that. I always used to say, Why aren't you driving, Dad? Why can't you pick us up from school? Why is it always mum or and and it was because he was drinking. It was because when we were when I was a teenager, his his addiction was probably really, really starting to manifest and take a hold. But it mm. really peaked when I was about um 19, 20, and I decided at that point that I love you, but I can't live with you anymore. So Gosh. I, yeah, it, it was it was a real tough, it was a tough decision because I knew that I needed to get out of the family home, but I didn't want to. But I felt like I had to, um, so I moved out, and I went to university because I knew at that point we didn't, I didn't have that luxury of having my parents be able to support me financially. So I was doing that myself. So I became very independent and and my dad really did instill that in us anyway, but I became independent in other ways. So I was never really dependent on my parents. So I moved out, went to university um, and I met my husband while I was at university and I fell pregnant in my final year. That is when we realized that my dad had a drink problem, and we kind of admitted it to ourselves, but again, we were still quite in denial, and we didn't talk about it to anybody.
2: so by this by this point, Sarah, how long had it was it since that your relationship had had sort of disintegrated and and become so sort of awkward, I guess? How long had he been struggling with coming to terms with his addiction?
4: Years. Honestly, is, yeah. I would have said it was years, but it, it was a subconscious thing, if that makes sense. Mm, yeah, It was something that we, there was so much resentment there and bitterness towards him for what he'd put us through. Um, mm. But it never, we never really, we never really admitted it to ourselves, let alone him admitting it we struggled to admit it so I I would say everybody talks about the alcoholic being in denial but we were also in denial and not just that we were protecting him we I didn't want to go and say anything to anybody I didn't want to tell my teachers I didn't want to tell my lecturers that oh my dad's an alcoholic and I'm struggling at home and it's affecting me we just kind of got on with it and just lived with it it was just there
2: I think the reality of it is sometimes too much to bear. So it just kind of shove it under the carpet. And that's exactly the the issue, isn't it? Absolutely. And that's exactly what we did. We
4: we brushed it under the carpet and we brushed it under the carpet to protect ourselves, but to also protect him. Because, I mean, at that point, we were living on a housing estate when my mum was working all hours under the sun and my dad was passed out most times on the sofa dealing with Dealing with his mental illness, but his addiction as well, and mm. we were having to fend for ourselves and kind of just get on with it. And it—you didn't really. Then at that point, I didn't want to tell people what my dad was going through because already there's a stereotype that I was being brought into of, or you come from a housing estate and you're pregnant and you're still at university. There's so many societal stigmas that I was already dealing with that to then come out and say my dad's an alcoholic and I need help. He needs help. It. I kind of felt a little. I, I felt embarrassed. I'm not going to lie. I, I'm ashamed to say mm-hmm. that now, but it. I felt embarrassed. I felt ashamed, and I know he did as well. I think we all did.
2: And I guess that feeling of resentment that you had towards him because you didn't understand addiction at the time, you didn't understand his illness because you really, you were too young to understand, I guess. You know, it takes a while to comprehend what's going on with someone that's in that situation. And for me as well, like it's taken me 40 years to understand what's going on with people. Um, It's very difficult to, to comprehend what's happening. And the easiest thing to do is just to ignore it and get on with your own life, which I guess is what you did.
4: I did I I kind of escaped it I moved away escaped escaped it but I was a lot older before my time I had despite my resentment and my bitterness towards him I was always trying to fix him um and apparently that's that is a manifestation of a child of an alcoholic you I fell into a category of I wanted to protect him from that stigma and I also wanted to fix him so I was always trying I, my my feeling in my head was if I go to university and I do well then people won't think that my dad failed as a parent because I've done so well and then I'll be able to help him and um, because I'll have the resources financially to put him through rehab or mm. and so I was always every choice that I was making was centered around my dad's addiction um and I didn't realize at the time that I had anxiety myself. It was just something that became so ingrained in me. that I just learned to yeah. live with it. So it was little things that I'd, and I still get like it now, but I'd become anxious around moods, people's moods. So whatever mood yeah. somebody was in, I was on edge or I was um, in, I could pick up, I was so sensitive to people's moods and it made me on edge. It made me anxious. It made me nervous. I couldn't stand being around anybody in a bad mood, um, and I think that is a manifestation of not knowing what mood my dad was in. And it—it's it, interesting
2: it, what you're saying, Sarah, because like what you're telling me, you had all these resentments and everything was going on, um, but yet the love was still so pure for your dad, no matter what, no matter how things had turned out and what was going on with him. Every th- decision you made was to try and get him out of this situation, and it's incredible, isn't it? But in a family, how no matter what happens, the love is still so strong, and that's that's just lovely to hear.
4: It was unconditional, and I can I can genuinely say that I knew. You see, I, I said at the beginning where I was with my dad, he took me everywhere, we did everything together. I knew I'd I'd experienced that part of my dad, so I knew what he was capable of, and. I knew that this wasn't him. Yeah. I I knew it wasn't him, but I just, again, I was 21 at that point. And I I was, yeah, it was, it was just, it was, it was tough. It was tough. It was a whirlwind. It was, I mean, don't get me wrong. There was times when my dad had sober moments. So there were moments Mm. of sobriety where, we could have a proper conversation with him and he was always the person that I'd pick up the phone to and ask life advice for because he was so he was so good at giving it he he wasn't judgmental he was so laid back with us he was always there and he always told us he loved us like that was one thing that he knew he had his ways and despite it all he always used to say to us I love you I'll just want what's best for you and I'm sorry I can't do that for you so he was so he was never he was never violent yes he could get in bad moods and and come across in his tone quite aggressively and that was definitely the drink talking but when it was my dad he was just he was such a loving doting family man and it broke my heart that other people didn't get to see that like we we saw it his close family um so yeah the love was very much there it was very much unconditional um it, mm-hmm. And it's it still is, and even when the addiction peaked, I would say I was um, twenty-five. It really peaked at that point. I'd had my little girl um, at twenty-two, so I was so young, really, really young. And then I fell pregnant again with my youngest. But during that pregnancy, I developed health anxiety, um, and after a lot of therapy, we've we've pinpointed that the health anxiety was a manifestation of. My dad's drinking habits. So I couldn't control my dad's drinking. And I remember doing it. I remember getting to a point where I've got my own little family to worry about. And then I've got my dad to worry about. And it was getting so much that I compartmentalized in my brain and I allocated certain times to worry about my dad. So I made a pact with myself and I said, well, I'm only going to worry about my dad when I'm on the phone to him or when I see him. And then when I'm not around my dad or I'm not talking to my dad. I can then focus my worry on my family. Um, Hmm. So I'll only think about it at those times. So I did that. But what happened was I developed health anxiety on my own health because suddenly I'm a mum, I'm a parent, and I think to myself, how can my dad put me through this? Like if anything happened like to me, I wouldn't want my children going through that. I don't want my children to lose their parents. So I became so consumed and so worried about my own health because I couldn't control my dad's health and I was so worried about leaving my kids without a parent and not Mm. and I wanted to break that cycle and I wanted my children to have a better um family environment than what I did and I became obsessed with it I didn't realize at the time that it that was why I was like that it was just it was manifesting because it was a control thing I couldn't control my dad's health but I could control my own health so I was focusing on that and it was Gosh, really, it's, it was tough. It's
2: un, yeah, it's understandable that you had that reaction though, isn't it? Because you, you're trying to manage so many things. You're trying to balance so many plates at the same time. I mean, I know how you feel. I've got my son at the moment is not rather unwell. And I'm trying to do so many things, you know, in my life. And I have to compartmentalize, like you say, I have to think about that one minute. Because if I if I think about all the time, that one topic all the time, which is epilepsy, he is oh. going it is going to consume me mentally and yeah. I will go down with that ship. But you know what I mean? I can't. So I totally Definitely. understand where you're coming from. It sounds like there was a lot going on for you. What actually happened then with your dad? How did this all peak and and and, and how did it end? So um we were
4: we were due to go on a family holiday. My mum and dad had separated at this point. Um the drinking had become too much for my mum she still really cared about him still really loved him but I think that relationship had we, all her daughters had grown up moved out and it was time for her to go as well so that happened and that was I would have said at that point my dad's addiction peaked that that was a trauma another trauma in his life he'd lost at that point he felt like he'd lost everything um and he turned up to a family holiday without my mum. So it was, it was meant to be my sisters, my husband and me and the girls and my dad. He was so, so drunk and he was saying things and he was slurring his words. And I looked at him and I said, dad, you can't come on this holiday with us. I'm going to take you home. You're going to have to sleep this off. I don't want you being around the kids like this. You're going to ruin the whole holiday. You're going to ruin the atmosphere. It's not fair. It's not fair on us. Um, And it's gonna take you five days to recover from this binge. So I took him home and he was telling me symptoms he was having, like he was coughing up blood. His, he was um, shaking. If he, if he weren't drinking, he was shaking. He was, he was in a lot of pain if he didn't have a drink. And he was trying to explain that to me. and And at this point, again, I didn't understand the severity of the illness. I didn't understand that my dad was physically dependent on the alcohol. I actually, at one point before this, poured all of his drink down the sink, which I now know I shouldn't have done that because withdrawal is deadly. Um, But I I dropped him back home and I said, we'll deal with this when we get back, which is what we did. And I said to my sisters, under no circumstances, contact my dad. We need to try a different approach because I felt like I tried everything. I felt like I tried tough love. I felt like I tried being loving and understanding. don't think I had but I felt like I did at the time and I felt this time we need to stop enabling the addiction so we need to leverage what we had against my dad and we knew my dad's weakness was his girls we knew that my dad's love for me and my sisters and his granddaughters um, was enough we felt like it would have been enough for maybe to scare him into submission so I saw him when we got back from the holiday and I said right we're not going to see you until you admit that you have a problem and that you need help so my youngest sister's not going to live with you anymore she's moving out she's coming she's coming to stay with us when she's not at university and you're not going to see any of us and you're not going to see the kids until you sort yourself out dad it took three months and I got a phone call three months later and he was crying and he said um this gets me really emotional he said everything that I've been through is insignificant compared to losing my children. I will do anything you want. You name it, you can be in control. I'll do it. And I was so proud of him because at that point he went to a a, um, charity detox center and he had a medical detox. And the doctor there said to me that your dad's physically dependent on alcohol. If he stops drinking, suddenly without any medical support it will kill him. Um and again that 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 didn't compute it didn't register because you think it's not going to happen to us. You think we'll be fine. He'll cut co- he'll go on this. That won't happen to us. Um very naively. And he did. He came off of it and he he done so well. And I got my dad back. I got that dad back that I had when I was a little girl. We I managed to have 12 months of an wow. Absolutely. I, and I'm so grateful we got that. And he said within that 12 months, he said to me, you saved my life. I, I don't think I'd still be here now if it, if it weren't for you um, forcing me into that. But what we did and what we failed to realise again, what we didn't understand was that he had an illness. The alcohol addiction wasn't the issue. The mental health was the issue. Alcohol addiction was a side effect of the trauma and the anxiety and the depression. We didn't treat that. We very naively assumed he's not drinking anymore, he's fine, and he's not an alcoholic anymore. He's fine, he's normal again. And we brushed it under carpet again and we didn't talk about it. Um, and then we lost his dad, in my granddad in the March, 2017. Um, and that was enough, that was a pivotal moment in my dad's life for him to relapse. And again, I knew he would relapsed because, and this is how in tune I was with my dad. I could tell whether he'd been drinking from just one sentence over the phone. I could tell. I knew. All he'd have to say to me was, hello, um, what are you doing? Or where are you? And I would know instantly, you've been drinking. And I knew before my granddad's funeral, we had a massive argument. I said, you've been drinking again? And he, he was telling me he hadn't. I thought you have I, I can hear it I can hear it in your voice that's your drunk voice that's what we called it your drunk voice that's your drunk voice and and it was like my husband could never tell he was he, he, th- he thought I was mad so like, how can you tell he's been drinking I don't understand you just literally picked up the phone to him and like you don't understand I've lived with this for years he's been drinking I can hear it um, and he had he'd relapsed and it wasn't until summer 2017 and I've never, and I can honestly say this, I've never in my entire life felt frustration like it. I was completely out of control. His addiction and illness had peaked so badly that I knew we were on a downward trajectory. I knew we were on a downward spiral. And I knew that there was only one way out for my dad at that point. Subconsciously, I knew that it was death. And I said that to him and I was, at this point, I'm just crying And I'm angry and I'm saying some horrendous stuff to him. I'm calling him some awful stuff, swearing at him, telling him I hate him. And that was literally two weeks before he died. And I said to him at one point, I I hated myself. It took a lot of therapy for me to get over it. But I said, dad, you'd be better off dead because right now I don't think you realize what you're doing to us. I hated myself for saying that to him absolutely hated myself and he rung me um crying one day and he said did you mean all of that and I just said no I absolutely didn't I said but I don't think you realize like what you're doing to yourself you're killing yourself and there's nothing I can do I'm I'm ringing people for help I'm ringing his GP I'm ringing helplines and all i yeah, is getting...
2: desperation. Yeah. It's desperation and fear, isn't it? You don't want to lose him, and, you know, those emotions are going to come out. It's just, it's very sad, but it's just the, your reaction is, is, what can I do? You're absolutely desperate at that point, I guess.
4: Uh, uh, and that's exactly what I was. I, and I remember ringing my mum, and I was hysterical, and I said, We need your help. I don't know what to do. This is the worst he has ever been. I really don't know what to do anymore. And, um, Literally, like I think it's like four days before we lost him, I had a phone call from him. He was hallucinating, he was seeing his dad and he was coughing up blood again and he was in a lot of pain. And he said to me, Oh, if I survive this, then I'll live to old age for definite. And I thought, What do you mean by that? Like, what is going on? What is happening? So I went round there and I went to see him, and he was curled up in bed shaking, he was bloated, he was jaundiced, he was um, vomiting all the time, bringing up blood. All the symptoms of alcohol dependency and withdrawal had kicked in because at this point, where he'd been on a clinical detox, when he went back to drinking, he needed something a lot stronger than what he was drinking before for it to have an effect. And so this time he wasn't drinking lagers or beers or anything weak he was drinking a litre of vodka a day that we know of and he was drinking it neat um and he suddenly stopped he he got scared and he suddenly stopped thinking i've gone too far i need to stop before i get dependent on it again it was too late he was already dependent on it um and we had an argument that day because i said right i'm well i'm calling an ambulance you've got liver failure we need to go to the hospital and at that point he kind of took control back and said and he shouted at me and he reminded me who the parent was and he said you will respect my decision i'm not going in the ambulance if you ring an ambulance i'm not getting in it and his exact words to me were there are people at that hospital that deserve the doctor's time more than me i have done this to myself i will get off of it myself um, there's children at that hospital that need to see a doctor. I'm not taking up those doctors' time because of my weakness. And I, at that point, I said, well, I can't watch you do this to yourself. And I went. And I, I never – it took a lot – uh, I only recently just forgiven myself for that because I felt like I'd contributed to his death. I felt like I'd killed him. Oh,
0: that's so a lot.
4: So we went – so – A few days later, um, I got a phone call from my sister and she said, you need to get up to A&E dads in a bad way. And I got there. And by this point, I think they call it wet brain. So his liver was failing and all the toxins from his liver were accumulating in the rest of his organs and going to his brain. And he wasn't drunk. So when I saw him, he wasn't drunk. It was a different kind of... um, confusion he didn't recognize me for starters and he looked vacant and he he reminded me of a dementia patient and by at that point when from from being in a e within 30 hours he was dipping from or he was going from severity to severity within wards so he started off in the um assessment unit and then he went into majors and then he went from majors into resus and then resus, we've got two consultant surgeons in the room showing me scans of his lungs, and it still weren't registering just how poorly he was. I mean, I've been to a and a lot of times having kids and for myself, and I don't think I've ever been in a room with two consultants. And I think when that happens, you know it's serious. But it didn't yeah. register. It still wasn't registering. And then he went from resus into a ward. And within a few hours of being on a ward he was in intensive care hooked up to a dialysis machine semi-conscious um and i still wasn't accepting it i was still in denial and when i went to see him in intensive care the curtains were around him and um my mum was with me and her phone rang and it was the hospital and we both looked at each other and we knew what was coming um and out came this tired defeated surgeon and he just sat down and he started listing off everything that was wrong with him and I had to stop him midway and I just said is my dad going to survive this and he looked at me and he said he has a 10% chance of surviving that's if he doesn't die when I put him on a life support machine Mm -hmm. um so I I walked out the hospital I went I begged my dad to try and fight it but I felt like I was being selfish at that point because I felt like he'd gone through so much and I felt that even if he did miraculously survive that the lust and damage that would have had on him mentally probably would have um been life-changing and they, they said that as well um so I I disappeared for a bit my husband was absolutely amazing my husband was like another son or a son to my dad and he's very close and he did all the talking with the doctors and persuaded me to come back and hold his hand while we switched him off and it was painful and I remember I remember we turned off that machine and I sat there and I thought I'm I felt like I was at crossroads I was already vulnerable with my own mental health and then, now that had happened, and I knew that if I followed that trajectory that I was on with my own mental health, I would end up like my dad. Because I was very, I'm very much my dad's daughter. We're very similar mm. in personality, and I know that. I don't. I don't know the scientific evidence for this, but I know that I have an addictive personality, which is why I can't drink alcohol. I'm scared of it. I'm scared of what will happen to me if. I get hooked on that or because I know that I could very much end up like that. So I, I, I avoid it. And I knew that there's two ways that I can go and there's, I can go that way or I can go this way and ensure that the, the trauma that my dad endured stops now it stops with this generation and it doesn't get passed on to my kids. Cause I do not want my kids going through what I've been through. Yeah. Um, and fortunately that's, that's the road I took and, And I always say to people now, and it sounds really cliche, but I say that my dad saved me. My dad's death saved me. And I think if he knew that's what it would have taken for me to get my my own mental health sorted and to have the therapy that I needed and to work on what I'd gone through and so it doesn't affect my children, I think he'd have died 10 times over.
2: Um, oh, Sarah, that's so, so sad. I'm so sorry that you had to go through that. As for, sorry, I'm getting a bit emotional, but like, no, it's, <laughs> it's incredible. Like you're saying basically what he did. Sorry. He, he sort of almost sort of sacrificed his life for you to understand the situation so that you didn't have to go through the same. And God, what a hero, what a hero your dad
0: was. That's,
4: that's how I like, I like, I like looking at it that way. And I, I think... I like to, this is why I do the work I do now, because I feel like, I feel a a massive, I feel guilty. Of course I feel guilty. Um, But I also feel a massive gratitude and I feel a massive um, responsibility to help him now. I know he's not alive, but there's other things that I can do to help him. I don't want my dad being another statistic. My dad was ashamed to get support. The stigma consumed all of us he was ashamed and he said that I, I, I mentioned earlier on he said that he didn't want to go to the hospital cuz he'd done it himself my, my dad's embarrassment and shame for what he was going through and experiencing prevented him from accessing support yeah that made and lucy
2: no yeah sorry
4: go on no sorry that I was, that made me really angry and it really yeah. kind of motivated me to break down those stigmas and to really challenge them and so I've made it that I've made that my mission now and, and because I've, I think it's no different is it to an, a smoking addiction it's no different no. To eating the wrong foods and there's been so many like so many incidences where what after he died people would say he did it to himself and he only had himself to blame it was mm. self-inflicted but 80 percent and I, I don't quote me on this but I, I read a statistic and I, i'm pretty sure it, it was really high. it was really high so it's between 80 and 85% of illnesses are environmental, which means that it's what we've done to ourselves. It's what we've eaten. It's what we've inhaled. It's what our yeah. lack of exercise. So I started thinking, well, that means so coronary heart disease, for instance, which 90% of those it's listed in the NHS, that 90% of coronary heart disease is caused by what we eat and drink. That's mm. self-inflicted. Surely we, we can't apply that logic to drinking and penalise people, bearing in mind it's so socially accepted. Like, if I tell people I'm not drinking, then they assume I'm pregnant, boring, on antibiotics, or I'm the designated driver.
2: So it's It's so so socially accepted, isn't it? Yes, the normalisation of alcohol in our society is the problem. And, and I guess like what we're doing with this podcast and what you're doing is we're talking about our shame. You know, we did feel shame too. I felt shame to reach out for help because I didn't feel like my problem was bad enough to deserve professional support. A bit like your dad in a less extreme version, I guess. But it's the same situation repeated over and over again. People end up struggling in silence because they feel such shame. And there's so much stigma around this world at word alcoholic that we end up suffering in silence and it's a terrible thing um Sarah I just want to say like your story is is so important and and I'm just so encouraged by you and and our listeners are just going to absolutely you know really get on board with you I think um, your website warriorkindcouk it's a community dedicated to normalising conversations around mental health and wellbeing. Have you got any other projects coming up to do with that and, your, and, and the legacy of your dad?
4: Um, yes yeah, so Dave and I, Sober Dave and I are going to be working um, on a few exciting collaborations coming up in the new year um, based around stigma attached to alcohol use disorder Um, Warrior Kind, we've just launched our own peer support network app. Um, So it's a a little bit like social media, but it's completely dedicated to conversations around mental health. We've got a group within that app, especially for loved ones of alcoholics, which has actually um, initiated some really life-changing conversations for people. It's given people an opportunity to talk amongst other people that are going through similar things to them but it also um, encourages them to get professional help so we like to think of the app as the first step to getting support
2: yeah that's wonderful gosh that all sounds amazing will you send me all those links so I can add them into the show notes afterwards so all of our listeners I mean I think talking about our struggles and experiences are truly what leads us to seek support and gain understanding and eventually heal we appreciate your bravery and openness when talking about your lovely dad Sarah is so wonderful to hear that you know even though that situation was tragic that you are kind of triumphing triumphing from it um, thank you so much for coming on the Sober Awkward podcast you can go to Sarah's website to find out more about her which is warriorkind.co.uk or you can follow her at sarah underscore Drage on instagram um, our topic today Sarah of course is is shame and the, the stigma that causes us to to not reach out for support is there one last message you'd like to give to our listeners about about what it's like and 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 why you think your dad didn't reach out?
4: yeah I think
2: it's it's
4: oh right okay how am I gonna <laughs> I've got so much I want to say I'm trying to sum it up into one sentence um I wish that. I wish, from my perspective back then, that I would have learned more about the illness, um, would have understood it better, and understood that that was just a side effect. It was a symptom of trauma, it was a symptom of anxiety, depression. He was using alcohol to suppress those feelings. Um, and the shame and the stigma attached to having a drink problem ultimately shamed him into silence it shamed him into it shamed us all into silence it prevented us all from access and support and admitting that we needed the help um yeah so I suppose I would say if you don't understand it then try and learn about it yeah but I, I do that now that's one thing that I've if I don't understand something that somebody's going through because I can't relate and I don't have the same frame of reference that they do then I'll always try and go out of my way to learn about it, so that I can, I, I can provide a level of support or a level of understanding. Or if I don't understand, I can say I'm really sorry for what you're going through. I, I don't understand it, but I'm going to try and learn. Um, yeah. So I think just educating ourselves can be the real first step to breaking down stigmas and breaking down barriers. Um, yeah,
2: I totally agree. Yeah, just talking about it, learning about it and educating yourself is going to lead to more of an understanding and more of an empathy for people with addiction issues, I think. Absolutely. Thank you, Sarah. Thank that is such you. an incredible message and we wish you so much luck with everything you're doing. And if Lucy and I, if you can, we can ever support you in any way, you just give us a shout. Oh, thank you so much. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Sarah. I'm just going to read a quote just to end the podcast, a quote from Brené Brown. We desperately don't want to experience shame and we're not willing to talk about it. Yet the only way to resolve shame is to talk about it. Maybe we're afraid of topics like love and shame. Most of us like safety, certainty and clarity. Shame and love are grounded in vulnerability and tenderness. So that's I thought that was a lovely one to end on it just shows you like we don't like feeling vulnerable so therefore we don't approach it and and it can be a really really hard topic but if you face those hard topics it's the it's kind of the cure to to any sort of mental health and and um addiction issues is to really you know confront those problems if you have the support behind you to do so the book of the week this week is the power of vulnerability by Brené Brown um it's a wonderful book. If you haven't read it, I just highly recommend it. And I'll, I'll put all the notes into, into the show notes for everybody listening. I just want to once again, thank Sarah for coming on. And, you know, we're always giggly and we laugh a lot on this podcast. And we do talk a lot about statistics. But Sarah is an example of somebody who 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 is is a number out there, but it's actually her dad. It's, it's family members. It's mums and dads and brothers and sisters and family and neighbours that we're all talking about here they're not just numbers and and we hope that by you know tapping into Sarah's life and understanding the the trauma and that she's been through because of shame and stigma then hopefully more people will reach out for for support and I really appreciate you telling us our story today thanks everybody for listening and we look forward to seeing you on series three of uh, Sober Awkward next month. Thank you for listening to the Sober Awkward podcast. If alcohol is affecting your life in a
3: negative way, if you're struggling to moderate or your hangovers are causing anxiety, it might be time to reach out for help. Contact your local doctor, a therapist or connect with your local AA or sobriety group. Vic's got one.
2: Yes, go onto Facebook and just search Drunk Mummy Sober Mummy the group. Lucy and I both agree that even though this journey can be awkward, it's definitely worth it. And if we can do it, you can too. For more support on sobriety, head to Vic's website, drunkmummysobermummy.com. And Lucy runs an online space to support and inspire single mums. Find out more at beanstalkmums.com.au. Finally, if you've enjoyed the Sober Awkward podcast, don't forget to follow, subscribe, review, and share it with your mates. Yeah, don't make it sound like they have to, though. No, they do have to. I'm not doing all this for nothing, actually.
3: Search therapy works now wherever you get your podcasts and subscribe to make sure you never miss an episode.
1: Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European Linen.